I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. In today's reading, we'll be looking at the last three chapters of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapters 11, 12, and 13. In chapter 11, we have what we commonly know as the faith chapter, beginning with verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good report. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. As a matter of fact, here's a whole chapter dedicated to this issue of faith. A great definition of faith is seen in verse 1, and it says this, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now mull that over for a minute. It's a great definition. Look at verse 6 for some expansion on the concept. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. These two verses need to be read as a pair. Verse 1 tells us a couple of very interesting things. First of all, that faith is a substance. That Greek word there is hypothesis, which means it's a foundation. And then we have the second Greek word, elenkos, which means that it's evidence. These two words are strong foundational words that characterize our Christian walk. Hypothesis identifies a supporting structure, and elenkos identifies proof. In other words, faith provides the believer with a strong foundation and proof for Christian living. I know it seems like a strange concept to those who have not been saved in Christ, but to the believer, the faith of Christ strengthens the believer's walk, providing the foundation and proof that simply cannot be comprehended by the unregenerate. I've got a great discussion in my commentary on Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 21, that would be good to read. In that passage, I make the differentiation between the faith of Christ and as some put it, faith in Christ. The preposition thereof is quite important. And so if you get a chance, look at that commentary on Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 21 on BibleTrack.org. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, these words, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So you see... For the believer, the faith of Christ is substance and evidence enough to take to any court, and on that I rest my case. It was through faith that the elders in verse 2, that meaning the patriarchs of the faith, they were encouraged. Moreover, we accept by faith that our God is the God of creation. We see that in verse 3. Verse 2 receives more detail regarding that good report in the following verses where we have illustrations of Old Testament saints and the faith they exercised. We'll see that the goal in view was eternal blessing, a reality after death seen when we go to heaven 
in verse 13. Now being strangers here on earth, one day we'll experience our residency in heaven. Now verse 4. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found, because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed, and was delivered of child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. If that's not enough, just look at the demonstration of faith by all of these Old Testament examples. There we see Abel in verse 4, Enoch verse 5, Noah verse 7, Abraham in verses 8 and 17, and Sarah in verse 11. Now all of those are references back to the Old Testament, back to the book of Genesis, and for more detail and cross-references on those chapters, go to BibleTrack.org for today's reading. Now verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, in heavenly, where God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Verses 13 through 16 here point out that the Old Testament saints did not realize the fulfillment of their faith during their lifetime on earth, yet they obeyed through faith anyway. They did, however, realize a heavenly reward for their faith. Now verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. In this passage, we are told why Abraham was so cooperative with God about slaying his only son Isaac in verses 17 through 19. Abraham's faith is committed here in the incident involving the sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham on the altar in Genesis chapter 22. That faith was based upon God's previous promise to Abraham in Genesis 17:19. 
And here's that promise. And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his seed after him. Since Abraham had received the promise of God that his own promises from God would continue through Isaac, that was before Isaac's birth, Abraham literally believed that if God allowed him to go through with the sacrifice, he would raise him from the dead. Since Isaac had no children at that point in time, Abraham knew that he would return home with a living, breathing Isaac. Now that's faith. Now verse 20. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. By faith Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea, as by dry land, which the Egyptians are saying to do were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down, after they were compassed about seven days. By faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not, when she had received the spies with peace. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David also and Samuel and of the prophets. We continue in this chapter with the acts of faith of more Old Testament examples. We see all of these Old Testament patriarchs and for more detail on each one of them in the sacrifices and the acts of faith Go to BibleTrack.org and read today's reading, and you'll see cross-references back to Genesis and to Exodus and Joshua and Judges and 1 Samuel. All of these passages contain the characters that we just read about here with their acts of faith in chapter 11. Now verse 33, Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword out of weakness, were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, 
that they without us should not be made perfect. How about a generalized summary of the Old Testament saints and what they endured because of their faith? Well, you have that beginning in verse 33. We just read those verses. Verses 34 and 38 would seem to include the trials endured through the Maccabean period as well as the Old Testament times that we read about earlier. That's the period between Old and New Testaments. Regarding all of these witnesses, verse 39 says that they received not the promise. What promise are we talking about here? Well, it's the Messiah. Jesus at crucifixion and resurrection is in view here. Of course, there's another phase to that promise, which is fulfilled at the beginning of the millennium. We see that in Revelation chapter 20. We cross-reference that and look at my commentary on that chapter. But the first advent of Jesus fulfills that promise by perfecting them and us with his sacrifice on the cross to pay our sin debt. Thus they and we are made perfect as we see in verse 40. The Greek word teleao means to make complete. Like ourselves, they were not made complete until Jesus' sacrifice on the cross had been completed. So what's the lesson here? These people acted by faith. That's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Remember, we saw that in verse 1. So the example of their faith strengthens our faith. Now we find more about these witnesses in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, and the sin which thus so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. So you see, these witnesses here are those Old Testament saints mentioned in chapter 11. And these are the folks that so mightily demonstrated their faith in God. The Greek word for witnesses used here is martus. It's used 34 times in the New Testament, and it's used in the context of one giving testimony. So what kind of testimony? Well, it's a testimony regarding faith in God. These witnesses surround us with the testimony of faith. Wise people who embark upon a new adventure consult others who have previously been on a similar adventure. Well, here are your people who have been on the adventure of faith. Now we should go and do likewise. The finished work of Jesus on the cross made perfect, back in chapter 11, verse 40, made perfect all believers as seen here in verse 2. That verse also makes reference to the exalted position of Jesus as the high priest. That's portrayed in the Messianic Psalm 110. And there it refers to him as being at the right hand of the throne of God. We've seen the faith and endurance of witnesses of chapter 11. Now let's consider the trials of Jesus himself, verse 3. The recipients to this letter are then told in verse 4 that they have not yet been called upon to make similar 
personal sacrifices up to this point. We see the concept of chastisement in verses 5 through 17. Verse 5, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons, for what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partaker, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits, and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men, and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Paul transitions over to a different topic in this chapter, and that topic is chastisement. Why are these words here after the big faith chapter? He actually is still addressing the people to whom he spoke in chapter 10. Those are the people who seem to be struggling with the once and for all sacrifice of Christ on the cross. You may want to go to BibleTrack.org and get a review of those verses that we read and studied in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 39. So if by not requiring repeated sacrifices to renew salvation, how is it that God does deal with disobedient believers? Well, the answer is chastisement. He introduces the concept of chastisement in verse 5 where he begins quoting Proverbs chapter 3 verses 11 and 12. In other words, when we disobey God, he doesn't expect another sacrifice to be offered by the offender as the Jews were accustomed to doing. What he expects is a confession of sin. 1 John 1 9 says it simply, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But what if we, as believers, don't confess our rebellion against God? Well, right at the heart of this chapter 12 are verses 6 through 8, and here's what they say. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Paul continues to paraphrase from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 through 12, when he says, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son, in whom he delighteth. It's very important that we see the contrast here and, and recognize that he's tying up the principles 
that he outlined in chapter 10. Here they are. God uses chastisement, not loss of salvation, to correct believers. That's just like an earthly father uses chastisement to correct his children. For some detail on that chastisement, what it looks like, go look at the notes on BibleTrack.org for 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 34. And pay particular attention to verses 29 through 32. Here's what we find. God doesn't cast out disobedient believers. He chastises them until they turn from their disobedience or they die, whichever comes first. 1 Corinthians 11.32 is clear. It says this, But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. It is God who does the judging and the chastising. As a matter of fact, we don't see this principle for the first time here. It permeates the entire Old Testament. It's explicitly stated to Israel in Deuteronomy 8.5, which says, Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. Paul uses verses 10 and 11 to establish a comparison between the chastisement of earthly fathers as compared to that of God our Father. Then in verses 12 through 17, he encourages the Hebrews to walk an acceptable walk as believers by using some Old Testament imagery here, part of which appears to be taken from Isaiah chapter 35 and verse 3. Christian people who experience challenging times in their lives often ask this question, am I being chastised? Well, read the article that I've written on BibleTrack.org. You'll find it in the center box called Trial Versus Chastisement. It's in that pink box in the center on the main page of BibleTrack.org. Verse 15 is interesting as a follow-up to the chastisement verses. Two present active participles are used, which are a little difficult to simply translate into English without being a little bit wordy. The first participle is literally to be understood as the first identifier of two kinds of Christian people. And those, that first of those two kinds is those who are, King James Version, looking diligently. In their Christian walk, they are looking diligently. Literally, we're talking about those people who are being careful and following God's leading in their lives. The second contrasting group of people described also by a participle here are those who are not weathering the Christian life as successfully. And those are the ones who fail of the grace of God. Being a present active participle in Greek means a continuing action. The root of this participle means to lack, to be late, or postpone. When turned into a Greek participle, it describes a group of people who are presently demonstrating a lack in the grace or favor, the Greek word charis, in the grace or favor of God being those who are chastised for their disobedience. It's a nice summation of the preceding verses on the chastisement of believers. It's an exhortation to believers who are careful in their walk with the Lord, as opposed to being believers who are careless or lacking in their walk. And then there's your example of one who misses a blessing by being in that second category. His name is Esau. Jacob took care. Esau was careless. Jacob experienced Isaac's blessings of the firstborn. Esau was miserable. Notice that this example illustrates the resulting quality of life of Jacob and Esau. 
Jacob was blessed and Esau was a very unhappy man. That brings us to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 29. Verse 18. For you are not coming to the mount that mightest be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded, and if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it should be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But you are coming to Mount Zion, and into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. In this passage, in verses 18 to 24, we see an Old Covenant-New Covenant comparison Again, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 8, Mount Sinai is seen in verses 18 to 21 in reference to the sights, sounds, and reality of Exodus chapters 19 and 20. Zion here is a reference to Jerusalem. All through the Old Testament, you'll find it signifying such. He contrasts the harshness of the law of Moses as associated with Mount Sinai he contrasted to the new covenant and the new Jerusalem, which is heavenly, Revelation 21. It's also eternal and based upon grace, not law. Jesus is the mediator of that covenant, verse 24. His blood atones for sin, and that makes it superior to the blood of Abel, where it is said by God to Cain in Genesis 4.10, And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Just in case you still think that Paul is addressing people who almost get saved, referring back to chapter 10, almost get saved but don't, verse 23 ought to settle that issue. It says this, To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. The Greek noun used for general assembly there is used only here in the entire New Testament. That word is panagoras, and here's what it means. It's a compound word meaning universal gathering. The Greek word for church here is ekklesia, the usual word for church in the New Testament. The usage of the word firstborn in verse 23 is quite interesting, though a bit technical. Follow me closely here. The Greek word for firstborn here is prototakos, it is only used nine times in the New Testament, all of them singular except here 
and also in Hebrews 11.28. In Hebrews 11.28, it refers to the slain firstborn of Egypt at the Exodus. All other New Testament occurrences refer to Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn of all who are bound for heaven. Paul almost exclusively quotes from the Septuagint, that's the Greek version of the Old Testament. God declares in Exodus 34:19, All that openeth the matrix is mine, and every firstling among thy cattle, whether ox or sheep, that is male. The Greek word used in the Septuagint for firstling, prototakos, is the very same word Paul uses here in Hebrews 12.23 for firstborn. Only in this context is firstborn found to be plural. You will recall that these firstborn of the Old Testament later were replaced by the Levites in Numbers chapter 3 verses 5 through 16. The Levites were the priests under the Mosaic law. Christians are priests after the order of Melchizedek. We saw that back in Hebrews chapter 7. That's also according to 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 and 10 where believers are referred to as a royal priesthood. Therefore, Christians are the church of the firstborn, just as the Levite priests of the Old Testament were dedicated to God. Verse 23 goes on to say of believers which are written in heaven. Couple that with the spirits have just been made perfect, and that should settle the issue regarding to whom verse 23 is addressing. In verse 24, we see a reference to the blood of Abel mentioned in Hebrews 11.4. While Abel's blood was not sufficient to save, Jesus, as the mediator of the new covenant, is able to save. So what about those who, in verse 25, refused God's commandment? They were physically chastised. Hey, that's the whole subject of this chapter of Hebrews, physical chastisement. If these Christian Hebrews reject this message from God... They will be physically chastised just like their Old Testament ancestors who also refused. And there's that reference to the shaking of the earth in verses 26 and 27. That, of course, refers to Exodus 19.18 when Mount Sinai shook. He then refers to Haggai 2.6 with the promise, and here it is, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. That shaking comes at the end of this present world in Revelation 21.1, where it says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. The point? Well, everything on this earth comes to an end, but those who are saved by the grace of God will live eternally. That's what verse 28 says. As believers, we are part of a kingdom which cannot be moved. That's the context in which we serve God. And the fire, verse 29, well, for that, we once again look at Exodus 19.18. It says, And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. Everything on this earth will pass away, except for those who have a faith relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now here's an important key to chapter 12. It's talking about chastisement of believers all the way through the chapter, beginning with verse 5. When reading this chapter, we must not lose sight of that very thing. Now let me say a few words for the power student here. 
on this comment, you'll need to refer back to chapter 10 and to chapter 6. But here's the point. If chapter 12 is talking about believers, in other words, chastisement, church of the firstborn, and so forth, then is not that finishing up on the discussion which Paul was dealing with in chapter 10, verse 26? And if that's the case, so if chapter 12 is about saved people, then 10.26 and the following verses also about saved people. If 10.26 is about saved people, then chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, also saved people. It's the same phraseology about Christ and a sacrifice, his sacrifice on the cross, that terminology is used the same way. That's why studying Scripture in context is so vital to rightly dividing the word of truth. So, to summarize, compare my notes on Hebrews 10.26 with my notes on Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 through 6, with the notes of this chapter, and you'll see that in all three cases, Paul is talking about the very same group of saved people. Then we have some parting comments in Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity, as being yourselves also in the body. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have, for ye hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what men shall do unto me. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meat which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore into him without the camp bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of the praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, they do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience and all things willing to live honestly. But I beseech you rather to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, to the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in the sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in few words. Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom, if he come shortly, I will see you. Salute all them that have the rule over you, and all the saints. They of Italy salute you. 
Grace be with you all. Amen. Paul lightly touches on several subjects here in these verses, hospitality in verses 1 and 2, prayer for those in bonds because of their faith in verse 3, the sanctity of marriage in verse 4, contentment in verses 5 and 6, and he admonishes them to follow leaders whose lives reflect godliness in verse 7, and leaders come and go, but Christ remains the same, we find in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Paul then combats some doctrinal error being taught in verses 9 to 16. Some Old Testament practices referenced here. It's not obvious what this doctrinal error being taught was, but these verses are designed to set it straight. It appears to be some variant of the Judaizer message that Paul continually taught against. Those which serve the tabernacle in verse 10 is a reference to people still bound by the law of Moses. Verse 11 refers to the Mosaic law regarding the sacrifice made on behalf of the high priest. We see that in Leviticus chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Jesus suffered without the gate, just as the high priest was required to go outside the camp to a clean place to finish his sacrifice. This picture equates Jesus as the high priest. That being the case, our lives should offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. Verse 15. Our sacrifice is a godly lifestyle. We see that in verse 16. We see in verses 17 and 18 that good leadership is to be followed. That's similar to the admonition of verse 7. The Greek word for obey there is a little different from what you might expect. It is pytho. It's used in the present imperative passive tense, which literally should be translated, let yourself be persuaded. That is followed by the admonition to submit yourselves, another Greek imperative, which commands us to surrender to that authority. This verse demonstrates the magnitude of responsibility for those who are responsible for the spiritual nurturing of others. Verse 18 follows with a prayer request for strength to be a good spiritual leader. In his final words, Paul gives a summarized doctrinal position of this letter to the Hebrews in verses 20 and 21. God is a God of peace. God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus was that great shepherd of the sheep made possible by the blood of the everlasting covenant. And finally, may Jesus make you perfect in every good work to do his will. And finally, the close to this letter is shorter than in most of Paul's letters. We see it in verses 22 to 25. The exhortation of verse 22 comes from the Greek word paraklesis. It's the word used for comfort or consolation. That refers back to Paul's encouragement that he gave in Hebrews 10.25, where he said, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the matter of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And that brings us to the end of the book of Hebrews. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton. 